We'll be in Acts chapter 19 today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. In your pew Bibles, it's right after chapter 18. (laughs) That's really helpful, I know. Page 1335. Because of the similarities that our text actually today shares with the text we had last week. I had thought early on as I prepared for last week's text that I I wanted to put this chunk on it. But as I studied, there was just some stuff I wanted to slow down on both last week and this week within the text. You know, according to my records, we are in this series on Acts for the 47th time. And uh, we've been partitioning up the book of Acts into parts. We're in part three. And the first sermon uh, in Acts of part one took place on Sunday, May 12, 2019. That was uh, BL before Landon. <laughs> and now, as I said, we're, we're doing this in parts because I'm simultaneously going through the books of First and Second Samuel and I'm taking other breaks here and there. But we began this book way back then. And I mention that because we are going to do a little bit of review today of the book of Acts to bring out what I find to be the point of our passage today. You know, any sermon series breaks up a book of the Bible to where we may not always connect themes right away as if we might connect themes if we're reading the book in one sitting. And it's important that we do this because this is going to be one of those Sermons that looks at a topic of some debate within the Christian faith. And this passage might propose a lot of questions. And one of the best things we can do when questions arise from a passage of Scripture is see if we can't discern what what the God-inspired author is trying to communicate (laughs) instead of trying our hardest to make him say things we think he might be saying. Does that make sense, that difference? So we're going to dive right in into Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, and I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the word of the Lord today, if you're able to. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, it says, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the interior and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? No, they answered. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. When to what then were you baptized, Paul asked. The baptism of John, they replied. Paul explained, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. 
There were about twelve men in all. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, there are some questions that we might have looking at this text if we were to actually sit and and think it through. Help us to understand what you want us to ask of this text. Help us to understand the importance. This is in our Bibles for a reason. Help us to receive your word, to receive the reasons you wrote this, to apply it to our lives. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be baptized in you and to be Jesus to those around us. Father, say what it is that you desire and get me out of the way. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we love and love to serve. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I wrote this message earlier in the week, and I I had some business sessions, board meetings to do for our denomination in my office looking at a computer Friday and Saturday. And uh, I didn't have time to come back to the drawing board and rewrite it yesterday. So, But one of the things I thought about mentioning from the get-go that wasn't in my notes is we call this sermon series Jesus First Church Continues. And I want us to see today that this really puts the proverbial nail in the coffin that the church that Jesus set up continues through us. Because we see today that Pentecost comes to the world. And last week, we were told of a brief happening in Ephesus, a location that I'm convinced Paul wanted to go to at the beginning of his second missionary journey, yet God hindered Paul, providentially or supernaturally, from going there. Acts 16, verse 6 said that the Holy Spirit prevented Paul and company from speaking the word in Asia. Now, that's the Roman name for basically Turkey, wherein Ephesus was the capital. And now, after about two to three years, where the bulk of Paul's time was in another place called Corinth, Greece, Paul was able to briefly hit Ephesus on his return trip, and he stated that if God willed it, he would be back, but he had a schedule to keep. And as Paul returned, coming from Ephesus down to Jerusalem, then up to Antioch, and now he's heading back over the Turkish mountain ranges, while he's doing all that, we were told that a man named Apollos came to Ephesus. Uh, And in the way that Luke, our author, writes, Apollos had echoes of John the Baptist. Uh, Apollos seems to be a bit of a rock star, but he, he lacked a very important truth within his doctrine, teaching, and practice. And it is the same situation as it is here, where Paul, after Apollos apparently left Ephesus for Corinth himself, Paul is now coming back to Ephesus, and we read, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the interior and came to Ephesus. And the BSB would notate for us that actually the word highlands could be used here instead of interior. And Paul is going through the more mountainous regions as opposed to the low-lying trade routes because he's a glutton for punishment. No, that's not it. 
It's just likely that he wonders and he realizes that the more harder to reach spots haven't been met with the gospel yet. And so Paul is reaching those areas as he's on his way to Ephesus. And when he gets to Ephesus, there he found some disciples. Now this word disciples is important in answering a question that I really don't think needs to be raised from the passage, but people will ask, because these disciples have a glaring ignorance of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get there in a minute. Were these people even really saved? Well, Luke said in Ephesus, Paul found some disciples. <laughs> now, some like to nitpick and say, well, Luke didn't specify what kind of disciples. Yes, and when he doesn't specify, it only makes sense to go with the most common usage of the term. Whenever he uses disciples, everywhere else understood as disciples of the way, Christians, believers. If they weren't saved, it seems to me that Luke wouldn't be calling them disciples, or he might put some caveats or modifiers on that, but he doesn't. Because these people, like the other 27 occurrences in the book of Acts, not to mention the 40 occurrences in Luke's first book, these people are disciples, part of the believing, part of the church. Verse 2, and Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? Oh, we see Paul recognizes their condition as believers. No, they answered. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Interesting. Now, lots of translations use this language right here. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. This is essentially... What lots of trustworthy translations say, CSB, ESV, New King James, New American Standard. However, one of my study notes pointed out that in the Greek, the construction of the language connects to John 7.39, which says in the BSB, He, Jesus, was speaking about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were later to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given. That is the similar construction back to Acts 19, verse 2, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So to perhaps see the connection here, I found at least two translations that made this connection. They're both very literal and they're both very not well used. So I will use the American Standard Version, which is a direct predecessor of the New American Standard Bible. Back in 1901, it's very King Jamesy. John 7.39 says, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And then from our passage, Acts 19.2, it says, And he, Paul, said unto them, the Ephesian disciples, Did ye receive the Holy Spirit when ye believed? And they said unto him, Nay. <laughs> We did, I guess they were horses. We did not so much as hear whether the Holy Spirit was given. Now, I hope you hear how this casts a bit of a, a different situation here for the Ephesian elder or disciples, I mean. There is obvious reason for the other translations to render it the way they do. I won't get into the deeper nitpicks. You're welcome. But, the thing is, is it could be that, that we're not talking about people completely ignorant or unaware 
of the Holy Spirit. It could be that we're talking about people who maybe knew of the Holy Spirit. They were just not up to date on the events of Pentecost. Or like Apollos in the previous section, maybe they were uninformed about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what Paul asks in verse 3. Into what then were you baptized? Paul asked. The baptism of John, they replied. Now, some people muse that this must mean that they were direct recipients of John's ministry, or at least recipients of his disciples, that is, receiving teachings from his disciples, maybe even before Jesus came on the scene. Maybe they're missing Jesus altogether. And I wasn't willing to go that far. Uh, first of all, Apollos, at the end of Acts 18, seemed to be in the same boat. However, we were told that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he taught accurately about Jesus. And it seems just as easy and likely for me to believe that these disciples here in Ephesus might be in a similar boat. They know about Jesus and his righteousness and his being Messiah, but they just haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Or, let's just confuse us more in verse 5, but first let's read verse 4. i got to make this a little bit cliffhangery, or else you'll just fall asleep right now. First we hear Paul in verse 4. Paul explained John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Now we're not going to rehash it from everything we said last week. But the baptism of John being one of repentance, it's one of inner righteousness. One that says traditions, trappings, religious rites, they aren't good enough. There needs to be some inside change. One that recognizes sin where it is and repents of it, stops doing it, seeks to change uh, that behavior from the inside out, from ways of thinking on the inside. That needs to be repented of. And that's what Paul tells them. But now, since these folks were of the baptism of John, that's also very important. They said that. You know, if you were here last week, you may remember that uh, I suggested that Priscilla and Aquila used John as a launching pad when they helped Apollos fill in the missing info on Jesus. Well, we read that's what Luke records Paul doing. He uses John the Baptist as a launching pad. For Jesus and his baptism, Paul says he, John the Baptist, told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. Now, this is also what convinces me that if these folks followed John, they had to have heard about Jesus. As I said last week, John the Baptist was one of those weird churches. Hey, welcome here. Go to Jesus Church. That's, that was the weird ministry that John did. Paul echoes what John told his disciples. One more powerful than I will come. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's a direct quote of John the Baptist from Luke's uh, gospel account. So it seems to me that it could be that these disciples, like Apollos before them, knew about Jesus. Again, I don't know how one could be a, a disciple of John the Baptist and not know about Jesus. Even so, here's where the wrench comes in verse 5. On hearing this, on hearing Paul echo John's words about the one coming after him, Jesus, 
The Ephesian disciples were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is probably the most significant line favoring what I said. Some commentators muse that that perhaps these disciples of John the Baptist may be a little less informed of Jesus than Apollos was. I'll tell you why. While Apollos, again, was instructed in the way of the Lord and taught accurately about Jesus, the Ephesian disciples here had to be baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, baptism is a practice that that corresponds to loyalty and conversion into the name of the Lord Jesus. So what's happening here? Are these Ephesian disciples now really disciples of Jesus? Do they got a black belt now? Um, Were they not believers before? Well, I think these are the wrong questions to ask. In fact, I, I think that this is not Luke's primary concern at all in the passage. I don't think he was writing, hoping or trying to provoke his readers to play judge on who's saved in this story or who isn't saved. And in fact, I think the expanding of Apollos' knowledge and the Ephesians' disciples' knowledge is leading to a culmination here. Read with me in verse 6 and 7. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues (laughs) and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) Let me preface it this way. I'm just a 32-year-old, small-town-raised, bachelor degree in an online seminary pastor. I haven't earned degrees or doctorates in coming up with great theories. I've maybe read the Bible from front to back in its entirety only one time. Uh, Of course, I'm in the books of the Bible every day. So while I might maybe arrogantly and naively hold pretty closely what I believe about this passage, I'm going to try my best to present to you what's happening here. Knowing full well that not everyone sees it this way, I'm going to try my best to present it to you humbly and present it to you as just a theory. I think that just as people might ask the wrong questions about were the Ephesian disciples saved, and if they were, is there a second work of the Holy Spirit? As in, they were saved, and then Paul said, hey, you're missing something. Here's the Holy Spirit. Gee, thanks, Paul. Now, now we're blacked out Christians. I also think that every time the Spirit shows up and people speak in tongues, people start asking the wrong questions. The wrong questions here would be, so when anyone is saved, should they speak in tongues? And... If people don't speak in tongues, does that reflect badly on their spiritual state? Because this book means so much for us and we we glean so much from it, we sometimes go all in and we want to say to every page of the Bible, what's this saying to me right now? And what is God saying about my situation right here and right now? And and we miss Asking questions about a smart, studied, spirit-inspired author, namely Luke, and his reasons for his devices in his and the Holy Spirit story that he's writing. We don't ask those questions. Why did you write this, Luke? What are you saying through your whole book? Case in point, the book of Acts is kind of backwards from our usual stories. 
sometimes reality and history doesn't fit into our neat and packaged fictional writing devices. And what I mean by this is, is Acts is backwards in that undoubtedly a huge climax with the book of Acts takes place at the beginning. It's supposed to take place near the end. Sure, Paul before world rulers is kind of a big deal. That's how Acts end. But Acts 1 and 2 are paramount, I think, in interpreting the rest of Acts. Acts chapter 1 sees the ascension of God incarnate who, who walked our dirt, breathed our air, was warmed by the same sun. Like, top, top that for a climax. Okay, says Luke and the Holy Spirit, I will. But before Jesus ascended, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift the father promised, which you have heard me discuss for John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Hmm. That sounds a little bit like what our passage is talking about today in the same book written by the same author. I wonder if this sheds a little light in what we're talking about. What is this gift? Oh, only the biggest climax in the book of Acts, in my estimation, in Acts chapter 2, where we have recorded for us dramatically with much pomp and circumstance something that also takes place in our passage. Indeed, Pentecost, which Deed read, read for us earlier. And as he read that for us earlier, I want us to consider something else back in Acts chapter 1, though. Acts Chapter one, we do kind of receive the theme statement of the book in school. You learn this, that if you're writing an essay, you, you usually lay out what the rest of the essay is going to look like in the beginning. Right. And Luke and the Holy Spirit did lay that out for us right before Jesus ascends. Luke records him saying in Acts chapter one, verse eight. But you well. I don't think I wanted it to do that. There we go. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Whether we know it or are cognizant on every page of it or not, this becomes the focus of the book. We get this statement and then the rest of the book is about Jesus first church, the 12 and the direct ministry coming from them. Witnessing in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost happens. What happens there? The Holy Spirit falls. People start speaking in tongues. Where does this take place? Jerusalem. But even during Pentecost, we get a, a snapshot, a, a foreshadow, a prelude of things to come. Because people from all over the world... From every nation under, you missed it, I think I have an auto transition there for some reason, but verse 5 says, from every nation under heaven, Acts chapter 2, verse 5. This is, of course, an illustrative way of saying people from many nations, near and far at the time. But they're all being witnessed to from the climactic Pentecost. Well, then what happens throughout Acts? We get bookmarks. We get many Pentecosts, if you will. <laughs> and they also mark these different locales where the disciples are being witnessed, or where the disciples are, are witnessing Christ to. People, including on Pentecost, seem to be getting saved left, left and right. At the end of Peter's sermon in Acts 2.41, 
Those who embraced his message were baptized and about 3000 were added to the believers that day. I want you to notice something absent. Even though it's Pentecost absent from this record are the new believers immediately speaking in tongues. But no doubt, having just experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit, because in Peter's invitation to their repentance, he did say in verse 38, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I believe they did. Luke adds one many one verse moments to tell us that the church is growing. I put them in your outlines, but Acts 4, 4, Acts 5, 14, Acts 6, 1, Acts 6, 7. And after the stoning of Stephen, though, we get cued that the disciples are about to head into phase two, if you will, of this great commission. As Paul, the same Paul we're talking about in his former life, began to persecute the church in Jerusalem. Luke records on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered, scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So they're leaving Jerusalem and they're heading out where they need to be in the Great Commission. And then something interesting happens in Samaria. We're told that Philip, he's one of the deacons actually chosen in Acts 6 to from the gathered broader church, Philip heads to Samaria. And if you don't remember in John four, nine, we'll fill you in. But Samaria was the California for Jews. Sorry, <laughs> but Samaria and, and Jews, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. Jews did not associate with them. However, this was before Jesus commission. Whenever he told them, go to Samaria and Philip's going through Samaria and he comes to this city. It's I think it's unnamed, but he's preaching and signs and wonders are accompanying his preaching and they believe. But then they get this weird caveat and it's weird in relation to all the previously mentioned verses I just named. Acts chapter 4, 4, 5, 14, 6, 1, 6, 7. Listen to this in Acts 8, 14 through 17. It says when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. On their arrival, they prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon any of them, and they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting, and it shares some content with our passage today, namely what appears to be this distance of time between their being believers we were told that, that the Ephesians in our passage are, in fact, disciples. And then these Samaritan Christians receiving the Holy Spirit. Kind of the same thing happened with our Ephesian disciples. Unlike our passage today, we don't know if they spoke in tongues. It just said in this passage that they received the Holy Spirit. I think this is directly related to Acts 1.8. It's a bookmark moment. We, we had the Pentecost in Jerusalem which is part of Judea. Now we have a Pentecost in Samaria. And in fact, some Bible teachers, commentators do go so far to call this Samaritan Pentecost. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. Now, again, even the passage doesn't specify. I would not be surprised if the Samaritans spoke on tongues in this occasion. Though, again, surprisingly, in the same chapter, we hear of Philip witnessing to another man, an Ethiopian eunuch, 
Acts chapter 8, verses 36 to 39. And there is no mention really even of the Holy Spirit or of his speaking in tongues, although I have no reason to doubt that Philip prayed for his receiving the Holy Spirit. Paul's conversion in Acts 9, you can look up in verse 18 to see his baptism. Again, no mention of the Holy Spirit, no mention of speaking in tongues. Although I definitely do not doubt that Paul received the Holy Spirit upon conversion. And then Acts chapter 10 comes and another Pentecost, if you will, happens. This time it happens in the region of Judea again, the city of Caesarea Philippi. However, it is a Pentecost in a Roman household. So it's not Jewish. It's not half Jewish Samaritan, but now it's Gentiles. Furthermore, there's no laying on of hands. There's not even really praying. But we read in Acts chapter 10 says, while Peter was still speaking the words of the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard his message. All the circumcised believers who accompanied Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and exalting God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold water to baptize these people? So you got the Holy Spirit before baptism. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. It's as if God is marking it for Peter, one who heard these first words back in Acts 1 8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The Gentile Pentecost happens here. You know, if you, if you look at the BSB, one of the things I like is not only in the gospel accounts do you get uh, the other synoptic passages under headings, but in other parts of the Bible, they'll just put under the heading of what you're about to read a passage that has similar topics or things, a cross-reference. And under this text about Cornelius, under the subheading, is our sermon text today. Because we have these big bookmarks, Pentecost in Jerusalem and Judea, Pentecost in Samaria, and then the Pentecost of the Gentiles here, marking the world or the ends of the earth. But then we have this echo back in our text. We really get what I would call a second Gentile Pentecost. It's an echo of the Acts 1-8 theme and the Acts chapter 2 precedent and still something else. Again, verses 6 and 7 of our text. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and, and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. I want to unpack a few things in this text. First, I want to say this kind of further validates Paul's ministry. I mean, this is far along in Acts, and Luke has definitely shifted to make Paul his primary person that he's talking about. Plus the fact that we're on his third missionary journey. We should know this, but if there was ever any doubt, Paul just kind of supervised another Pentecost. Like Peter, one of the twelve, was present for the first three. But Paul is being shown here, as Paul says elsewhere, that he is an apostle also, but just one untimely born. Secondly, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Ephesians in Ephesus. Again, if there was ever any doubt that Yahweh had set his sights on the world, this should verify it. Here is the Holy Spirit doing what he did in Jerusalem, the Holy Land, the Holy City. 
but he's falling far from what used to be the holy center. And he's filling complete ethnic John non-Jews. He's filling Gentiles after the prayers of Paul. This is a fourth and final Pentecost, a, a decisive Symbolic narrative piece stating that the progression of Acts 1-8 is nearing an end. The witness is going to the ends of the earth. But there's one more thing here, and no one picked up on it. I'm not saying that because I'm so smart. I'm saying you should maybe question my measly little world pastor brain. But verse 7 says, there were about 12 men in all. Now, in my first read, I said to myself, 12, interesting. There are 12 disciples originally, huh? But of the sources I looked at, the only one who did comment on this verse, one of my commentaries stated, as most commenta- most all commentators agree, there is no symbolic significance to this number. It is just the number of men involved. These men would most likely become the nucleus of the Ephesian church, which would become a hub of evangelistic efforts to Asia Minor. Now you know why I talk the way I do. But... I disagreed as I thought about it more because, again, I'm a 32-year-old rural pastor. I know better than this guy. Um, I tend to think that numbers are more often than not symbolic and meaningful. And even numbers that are actual values that I do believe. There were 12 Ephesian disciples here. But still, I believe actual values can simultaneously be symbolic in God's economy. Twelve in the Bible usually stands for divine government, divine authority, divine leadership. There were 12 tribes of Israel, God's holy people. There were 12 disciples, 12 leaders over the church. So what does 12 Ephesian disciples receiving the Holy Spirit mean? I think it means this, that the final Pentecost is a symbolic bookmark wherein Luke is saying that we're turning a corner in that Jerusalem is no longer the core of the church. The twelve disciples are no longer the core of the church. The Holy Spirit holds the centrality of the church together. See, the tribes of Israel were named. The twelve disciples were named. And actually, they were put back together after one defected, just to keep that twelve in there. But these Ephesian disciples, receiving the exact same power of the Holy Spirit, are not named. But there are twelve And Luke decided to point that out to us because you and I do not look or we should not look to 12 offices on the planet Earth. Rather, we are all filled by the Holy Spirit. We're being led by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit who poured out on that first original 120. That's 12 tens. I had to do my math real quick. And the power that empowered witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the Gentiles is now empowering witness and conversion in a decisive way outside of the original bounds, outside of the bounds of Israel. But it's the world and the twelve, the governing of Israel, the, the governing of the first church is now transferred symbolically to the unnamed and the distant because God His Holy Spirit is governing worldwide now. Does that make sense? These 12 are unnamed because they could easily be Kevin, Dean, Susan, Bill, Dan, Bonnie, and so forth. The name of this entire series is, again, Jesus First Church Continues because it does continue today. It does 
when we have the same spirit of Jesus ruling and reigning inside of us. The power of Pentecost and the first Pentecost here in Acts for the last time. This is the last time we have mentioned of speaking in tongues in the book of Acts is falling out on some Gentiles on a distant land. God is saying my power is unleashed on all flesh, Jew and Gentile alike. There is nothing different between them because I am for all. I am empowering all and I'm in all. He is in you and he is in me. In case you didn't know, the Holy Spirit gives you authority. You know, when the 12 disciples went out and did ministry, Jesus kept this truth of the authority the disciples have in perspective. We read that they returned from ministry in Luke chapter 10. Uh, We read, so he told them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus is saying that in reference to their ministry. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions. Those are common symbols of evil. Hence, Jesus gives an all inclusive statement here. And over all the power of the enemy, nothing will harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you hear that? Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Did you know that? Did you know that in Christ and in his Holy Spirit, you have authority? But Jesus says, don't let it go to your heads. <laughs> That's his point here. Do not rejoice that, your, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And I wonder if some of us, like myself in the background I grew up in, if we do need a little bit of a backwards emphasis. Now, I know all the Pentecostals in here are nodding their heads. We know that we have authority, Kevin. <laughs> but if you're like me, and if you're like many American evangelicals that just love to put that salvation transaction on the front, center, and top list, and we just get a little blurry on everything else, you're saved, but you all also got the Holy Spirit. You have power for God's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. You know, Christy and Calvin and I have really been trying to seize that last one. Any of you ever wrestle with (laughs) self-control? In Christ and in the Holy Spirit, you have the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise of the Holy Spirit your promise to be witnesses into out all the world. We thank you for these bookmarks and Pentecosts to see that progression that even just as Christ is fulfilled from the Old Testament prophecies, so so you, Holy Spirit, you masterfully wrote through Luke a thesis statement to show us that progression throughout the book of Acts. Father, whether we take my theory on it or not, I do believe hope that we take front and center the authority that you've given us in the Holy Spirit that we would be faithful to continue to be your witnesses on our end of the earth, that we would be faithful to sense your power, to be directed by your Holy Spirit, to do what you call us to do in each and every day. And Father, as I think about it, I just want to pray over our shared potluck, that you would bless the food, bless the hands that have prepared it, uh, that we would enjoy our fellowship, uh, our communion with one another and with you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.